Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by Quafin. Quafin displays financial information simply and elegantly. Quafin is one of the fastest growing platforms for financial data and analytics to research stocks and understand market trends. I discovered them thanks to their very passionate users, many of which are my friends. Imagine a Bloomberg Lite with tons of high-quality fundamental data, a powerful graph engine that can show it all clearly, and a user interface that doesn't look like it was built in the 1990s. If you're an individual investor, research analyst, portfolio manager, or financial advisor, do yourself a favor and check them out. You won't regret it. Sign up for free at Quafin.com. That's K-O-Y-F-I-N.com. As a side note, Rob, founder of Quafin, is a heck of a guy. I did a podcast with him, which was super fun. I will drop a link to the YouTube video in the show notes, and you can watch Quafin while you listen to me pontificate about something else as if you don't have enough of me in your life. But you will be able to see what the uh, what Quafin actually looks like with a real user uh, driving the platform. I think that you will be impressed with what you see. This episode features the one and only Meb Faber. Meb is a legend to me. He is one of the true OGs of the financial podcast game. He's done more podcasts than I can even imagine, and I have learned just a ton from the Meb Faber show. I hope that I do half as good of a job highlighting who Meb is as he does highlighting his guests, and this one was a real honor for me. I'm excited to release it, and I'm thankful to Meb for joining the show. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Thrilled to be joined today by Meb Faber, one of the coolest cats in finance and OG of the podcast game. Thank you very much for saying yes to coming on the show, Meb. I appreciate it. Great to be here. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, indeed. I learned a lot of finance from listening to you. So to be able to interview you is, it's a treat, man. I appreciate it. Well, we'll see if you learn the right things or the wrong things. We'll talk about it. Yeah, I'm sure I learned most of the wrong things. Let's see. Quit my job to invest, right? So I've failed the invest in yourself, make an income, just use low fee indexes. That would be lesson one that I completely botched. I am over-allocated to U.S. stocks, which I'm pretty sure you would not appreciate, and I have almost zero trend following in my portfolio. So how would you say my implementation of your lessons is going? It's a little more nuanced. I mean, I think the, the, the trend following part, for example, I mean, there's a lot of, as usual with everything, there's a lot of gray areas, and it's particularly in 2021, a lot of people, for example, are allocated a trend and don't know it. So we can go through your portfolio one by one if you want, and we'll just talk about it. I'm Two currently is allocated to negative trend, Matt. The knife catcher. I yes. like it. <laughs> Two is that the example about the U.S., you know, despite all my ranting about that topic about being a global investor, it's complicated. You know, the vast, we live in a world in 2021 where everything is intertwined. It's like a giant spider web. And so we talk a lot about this where borders have become increasingly irrelevant. And so people love to use the stat about if you invest in the US, it's like 40% of your revenues are for abroad, therefore you're diversified is usually the way the argument goes. But it's actually, True on the flip side, most countries in, act, in reality, U.S. is last on that list. 
most countries have a much higher percentage of their own revenue from outside their own borders, which makes sense. It's a global world. But it's even weirder for that. There's stocks that are in UK indices that have zero British revenue. There's US stocks that aren't even domiciled here. I mean, it's it's a little more nuanced than that. But that leads to the point of the world's your oyster. There's no reason just to focus on whatever. Well, I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. You've already you've already derailed the conversation. I know. I took it way too diving into finance right off the bat. For anyone that doesn't know who you are, other than having their head under a rock, do you want to give a little bit of a background on who you are and sure. what you do? Begin where? Where do you want me to start? Uh, you want to talk about your time as a biotech analyst? For the people watching this on YouTube, all five of you, you can see I'm wearing a Broncos hat and basking in the glow of us starting 2-0. I'm sure by the time this comes out, we'll be 3-0 because I think we're playing the Jets. But that harkens back to I'm Colorado native, was born in Colorado, spent about half my time growing up in North Carolina. Shout out to my fellow Carolinians, Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem, represent. All right. My yeah. dad's in uh, so, Appalachia. Yeah. There's some unbelievable breweries up near Asheville yeah. and Brevard and thereabouts. Love that part of the world. Miss it. Get homesick when I'm back there. Not so much when I'm here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Do you went hang to Virginia, out in the Smoky studying. Mountains when you were there? Oh, yeah. Many times. I could see you as a Smoky Mountain fan. Yeah. The, the, the East is a little too humid for me. I go back and it's it's a struggle. But I love it. Food, the people, everything is wonderful. It's just so warm and kind. Anyway, College Virginia, studied engineering, as you alluded to, biotech, biomedical engineering. Started out in aerospace, graduated at the peak of the internet bubble, so 2000, uh, but also the peak of the biotech bubble, which for those who recall was, was equally as exciting and vicious in the aftermath. Certainly a lot of rhymes with today. Worked as you mentioned, as a biotech equity analyst while going to grad school at Hopkins. And then the, that's where the path started diverging. My career path and, and hobby kind of flipped. So kept forking the road, kept getting wider. So started moving more and more away from biotech, more and more towards finance, in particular, quant investing. Did a stop in San Francisco and Lake Tahoe. Could qualify a lot as a ski bum period, but also as pretty formative time learning about trend following and then uh, moved to LA, which I thought I would hate probably in the vintage of 2006 to start this company, Cambria. Started managed money in 2007, right before the financial crisis. And then the rest is history. Fast forward till today, we got a dozen funds, a little over a billion in management and coming up with new and weird ideas as we speak. I got a couple questions from this. What about today reminds you of, I mean, I think you alluded to it. I don't mean to place the question, but I think you've said this and you just said it. 99, 2000 and today have some things that rhyme. I think one of the things that I'm thinking about is like E-Trade versus Robinhood and kind of whether or not the rise of the retail investor, do you think that that's a new story? Do you think that that's a, or a story that rhymes from the 90s? I think it's a story as old as time, as long as markets have been around. And so I think there is an increasingly large number of parallels between that period. I actually have a my current pinned tweet, which I'll leave up for as long until this publishes, is 
reference to the South, and it says, as my Southern grandmother would have said, what in tarnation for the non-Southerners out there. It's like, what in the world is going on? And I had started a running list of my favorite charts demonstrating the U.S. market and not intentionally saying parallel to that period in time, but saying things are getting super weird. And I don't know, there's 20, 30 charts in there and you can go down the list. So, all right. The first and most obvious that we talk about is valuations for context. If you look at the 10-year P ratio, which people love to call the Schiller CAPE ratio, but again, valuation metric does not matter. You can pick anyone and there's some, the Schiller CAPE ratio is probably one of the most sober of all the valuation metrics, but let's just use this one for discussion purposes and take it back to pre-1900, but even just back to 1900, the average overtime is around 17, pretty mellow, been as low as five, and it's been as high in December 1999 as 45, 44 and change, okay? Just just for context. And when then when inflation is mellow, like we have now, so sort of that one to 4% warm and cozy zone, it's allowed to be a little higher. People want to pay higher multiples for that certainty of mellow inflation, and that's true all around the world. The average is around 22. We're, well, before today, uh, we're at about 38. Yes, we're, so we're pretty recording high. on a day that the market is painting everything red. Yeah. Evergrande, or as I like to say it, Evergrande, which, which sounds like a Taco Bell, all-you-can-eat <laughs> menu item. Is getting extra also, saucy today. I joked, I joked on Twitter that I was chatting with a friend who did their Christmas party as a CEO. at a ta- They rented out a Taco Bell. And they were allowed to bring all their own booze and everything else. And I said, my God, can you either can the best idea or the really worst idea ugly. ever? Yeah. Yeah. It better be a day off the following day. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to have that be an office. Anyway, what are we talking about? Stock market valuations. So, so valuations are high and climbing, but if you look at the history of markets, we were actually, I think the first to do this. Others have certainly done it since. We built out a database of all the global stock markets, CAPE ratios as back far as, as you can go. And there's about 45-ish investable countries in foreign developed and emerging. And they all have similar summaries as the US. So an average around 17, but throughout time, there's almost always some crisis going on somewhere and some countries out of favor. Remember, the U.S. has been as low as five. And other times you have things where things are booming. And at other periods, like the late 90s, everything is sort of moving in the same direction. So anyway, that's one example. You start to have a lot of silliness going on. So sentiment in the late 90s, you got the final capitulation sort of blow off top. The example I love to give on sentiment, and sentiment's always a little squishy, and and maybe it's moved on to some other pockets this year than just US stocks. Crypto could certainly be one area, but we'll stay focused on stocks for a minute. That if you look at the number of the sentiment gauges, and my favorite was always American Association of Individual Investors, where they ask people, you bullish, you neutral, you bearish on stocks. It goes back to the 80s. There's others that go back to the 50s. And in the entire survey, the people were most bullish in the single worst month to be bullish in the entire history of the survey, December 1999. So people clamoring as things kept going up and up and up to the moon, people kept getting more and more excited. 
And that's the exact opposite of what you want. And not surprisingly, guess when people, listeners, were most bearish, thought stocks were going to do the worst, the best buying opportunity of our lifetimes, which was in March of 2009. The exact opposite of what you want. You want to be bullish. And so a lot of these sort of rhymes are happening. We've had, I think, if you go back to the 50s, and this is a Luthold study on sentiment, and you could average sentiment over the course of a year, you have like three or four or five of the highest sentiment years all the way back to the 1950s. Mm. And then if you were to bucket those top 10 highest sentiment and then just blindly look at the following year's returns, on average, they were zero going back to the 50s. And if you look at the 10 worst years of sentiment, when people wanted to run for the hills, hated stocks, following year's returns were 20%. So so much of this is just the same thing, right? Which is just prices going up and people heard and, and like that scenario. And then it's on and on and on. There's another, I'm happy to get into as many of these, the recent expectation surveys keep yeah, creeping up. Yeah, I think up. those are pretty interesting, right? Didn't you say that they were like 17% is what people are expecting this year? Well, it was 15. It was 15%, but it's not really fair in the survey to ask because they asked for real returns. No one knows the average investor doesn't know the difference between real and, and nominal, right? So yes, it's 17 or 18 if you include inflation, but they meant 15 probably. Okay. But again, that's 50% higher than historical returns. So that's already bananas. And then the big difference, I think, between now, and you can go look at this pinned tweet. It's just chart after chart after chart. I mean, there's, the, there's two big differences, I think, between, three big differences between now and then. One... Back then, I think everyone believed it, right? It felt like a the world is changing, right? The internet is changing the world. People thought they were geniuses. Stocks were going to the moon. I feel like now, and per, part of this is the Wall Street Bets discussion, is that a lot of people know they're doing really stupid things. You know, the the words they use to reference them yeah, themselves like are probably not. Shit. Yeah, and idiots, and a lot a lot of other yeah. words that are probably not PC, you know, it's like people know that they're doing really dumb things. A big difference then is on alternatives. A lot of global stock markets went crazy back then. That's not the case now. So most of the rest of the world today is reasonably priced all the way to downright. So foreign developed is low 20s on average. Foreign emerging is mid-teens. And the cheapest bucket is like a PE of 11. That wasn't the case in the late 90s. Most stock markets were expensive. Late 90s, bonds were a big alternative. So that's partially driving what we have today, what people call the TINA. There is no alternative where back then bonds yielded 4 or 5%. Now they're one and change. But that's the case with markets always. They always look a little bit different. There are some rhymes that the amount of stocks that are trading at a price to sales above 10 is the highest it's been since the late 90s. So on and on. Anyway, it's got a it's familiar vibe to it. But there are some people that are going to be like screaming into their earphones or whatever. They're going to be like, but Meb, what about index construction, right? And like, aren't today's companies much better than the past? And isn't this time different is sort of the question, right? That I feel like is going to come back. It's certainly the okay, one that mentioned- I have. I'll just personalize it. Which is the one you have? Well, you mentioned I, like three different things and I want to talk about all of them. Okay. So index construction, I think the percentage of the S&P that is 
let's say perceived to be higher quality businesses and i think demonstrably is if you believe gross margins like the businesses are better right so wouldn't those justify higher valuations so is your expectation that the thousands of stocks around the rest of the world the ceos and all the other countries are for some unknown reason just worse Worse capitalists, not as motivated, not as interested, not as particularly keen to rise out of poverty and grow their companies? Or you say the U.S. is just magically exceptional in that regard? Or you just think the sampling of companies just happens to be unique? I would say that where the U.S. actually is unique is I, I do fundamentally believe that there are pockets of geographies that create expertise that is very hard to create elsewhere. So like, I, I do think Silicon Valley is a very unique asset that we have. And I don't think that that's very easy to replicate. And I do believe that software has higher switching costs than a lot of other businesses. So I guess that that would be what I would say the installed base, plus maybe a geographic advantage would be what yeah. the US could benefit from. Yeah, I mean, look, the fun thing about the valuations discussion is if you want to have an open mind, I'm not referencing you, but thinking about global investing in general, we have a post on, the, on our blog called The Case for Global Investing. We summarize about five pieces from some pretty big institutions that picks apart and pulls into a couple discussions on this topic of valuations. And I agree with you, by the way, partially about what's happened over the past decade and why U.S. stocks have performed better. The interesting part is that is a rarity. So despite the fact the U.S. went from being a small part of the overall market cap in 1900 to 60% today, U.S. wasn't the biggest at the turn of the millennium, right? I think it was U.K. at, at 25%, which is, what are they now, three, five of the globe. Even then, so even this massive tailwind of going from a small country developing economy to the world's greatest power at 60% of the global stock market it's actually pretty rare for, if you look on the decade level, for U.S. stocks to have outperformed. So this past decade, they did it. They crushed everything. 2010, 2020, absolutely murdered most countries. The prior decade was the opposite, right? U.S. stocks ended 99 at that 45 valuation. It took a decade to work off. And then you got to go back to, so the 90s, they beat the average of the world. And then prior to that, 1910. Hmm. So... 80 years where you would have just been better off investing in the in sort of the, the broad average per decade. And you can talk about market cap weighted, GDP weighted. If you look at the best performing stocks per year, so even at size, large caps, 75% are outside the US. And that is just a breadth discussion, right? Just numbers. There's a lot more companies outside the US than inside the US. So anyway, I'm actually agnostic. You know, our largest fund is a US stock fund. Our largest long-only fund is a U.S. stock fund. And this brings up an interesting topic because everyone hears me talk about valuations and pulling my hair out saying stocks are expensive. And, and just to give you another waypoint, we did a study and said, look, it's, plenty of other countries have had higher valuations in the past. We were talking about China the other day. 2007, China hit a P ratio of 60. Hmm. And everyone... My God, if, if the listeners remember 
the period before the financial crisis, all that anyone could talk about is emerging markets in China and India and the BRICS. Yeah, the India BRICs had a P ratio big. of 50. Took them 13 years of zero returns in China. Mm. And then they had this nice run up, and now they seem to be <laughs> taking the escalator down, uh, elevator down, excuse me. But there's plenty of times other countries have been expensive. The, the granddaddy of them all, of course, was Japan in the 80s, hit a peak of almost 100 PE ratio and then no returns for 30 years. Now, why do I bring that up? I did a stat on Twitter, and this triggers everyone. I don't, I don't know why, honestly. But I think um, you enjoy not doing many that people, on Twitter. <laughs> not many people agree with me when talking about CAPE ratios and valuations, and, and we can get into maybe why. But Rob Arnott from Research Affiliates has a great phrase where he says, you know, when stock valuations are high and people are, the CAPE ratio is, is high, critics abound. You know, they come out of the woodwork to get angry when you're talking about stocks. And so if you look back in history at all the foreign markets, you say, look at the, if they ended the year at a P ratio above 35, so where we are now, if we close the year, what were the future 10-year returns? And the average is zero. The average real returns is zero. Now, it doesn't mean it's always zero, and, and about, I think it was a quarter or a third of the cases, the, av- the returns were positive, but it's certainly not 6%, 7% that people are historical returns. And it's certainly not better than that. And so part of the justification is certainly is because bond rates are low, which I can't say we proved, but was a demonstration that that's a false argument. But here's where I think people go wrong on this discussion is that People love to think in terms of being right in markets. Old Ned Davis book, Down Near You in Florida, great book called Being Right or Making Money. I may have murdered the title, but I think that's roughly correct. See if you can find it on on Amazon or or Half.com or whatever the used bookstores. It was out of print for a while. And everyone wants to use valuations as like, is this something that I can prove my priors and be right? And they use the example of... If valuation goes up, if stocks are expensive, so say they're at 38 today, let's say they have a monster and they go up to 45, 50 PE ratio, they say, therefore you were wrong. And that's not how it works. That's exactly how valuation works. That's not a bug. That is a feature. That just means all the future returns are pulled to the present. Stocks, remember, you know, they're infinite future cash flows. It's not just next year. And so as stocks get more expensive, future returns are likely to get worse. And so people hate that and they use it as justification of, of which to be wrong. We have an old piece, which you probably haven't seen, and I'll have to update the numbers at the end of the year, but it was called, if you just use the CAPE ratio, you would have missed a thousand percent return in stocks, dot, dot, dot. And that's a good thing. And the experiment we walked through, we said, what if... And we showed an old article from Seth Klarman in the early 90s talking about stocks being expensive, right? And Seth Klarman, for the listeners, one of the most famous hedge fund managers of all time at Post. And I said, let's just do an experiment. Let's say you got out of stocks when they were on the expensive side. And it wasn't even much. It was like P ratio of 25, I think. And let's say you just hung out in bonds. Or let's say you just like so you say you got out when so stocks from ninety three to whatever it was twenty eighteen last twenty twenty we updated this thousand percent so cape ratio is wrong but we don't live in a world of zero alternatives that's only true if you put your money in some coins under the mattress I mean my grandfather used to do that nobody else I know actually does that but 
if you hung out in bonds, particularly the long bond, your return was almost the same. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you didn't have two 50% haymakers you had to sit through. But then even better choices, you don't have to just choose between U.S. stocks and bonds, which is the mistake everyone is making today. They're saying the only choices are U.S. stocks with a dividend yield of 1.3 or U.S. bonds with a bond yield of 1.3, wherever we are today. But had you hung out in foreign stocks, in particular the cheapest countries, you would have absolutely destroyed the S&P over that period. So the whole point of this to me is, is to use a little common sense. And we did a Twitter poll. And we asked people, say, do you own U.S. stocks? 98 said yes. Then we said, would you own them if they hit a P ratio of 50? So higher than they've ever been in the U.S., okay? And half said yes. I said, would you continue to own them if they hit a P ratio of 100? Highest they've been versus any country in history ever. And a third said yes. So people are valuation agnostic is the way I take that. And so if you look at, and you referenced this earlier, market cap weighted indices, the numbers and, and listeners, you don't have to believe me, go to Morningstar, type in SPY and look at the metrics. Astonishing how high the valuations are across the board on every metric. But again, if you pull up a basket of high quality, we like to use the term shareholder yield. We have a fund that does this, but you could do any fund and similar. There's a ton of great companies trading at totally reasonable valuations within the US. So this discussion of just US stocks is to me a meaningless term. You know, there's areas that are totally fine. Doesn't mean they won't go down 50% if the market cap weighted gets tanked, but there's much better opportunities. And one of the dumbest things to do, listeners, please, my God, <laughs> is pay, is buy a basket of really expensive stocks because over time, that is a straight up donut or a bagel. On average, you buy stocks trading at price to sales of 10, your average return is zero. So, and there's a lot of those out there right now. All right, that was a long rant. Do you still wake? Yeah, this no, is? I like that still? rant. So I got a couple thoughts. Like I was looking at like a Russia ETF, for instance, and that ETF to me might as well be benchmarked against like oil and financial companies, right? Because it's basically energy and financials is almost 40% of the index. So I guess when you're looking at which cheaper countries to allocate to, I think just from first principles, looking at some sort of look through industry diversification is probably a reasonably decent idea to think about. Yeah. I mean, would you agree yeah. with that or no? You know, people love to use the example when we get into the weeds about US and foreign and sectors and certain areas have higher sector weightings. But you got to remember, things change over time. Very technical, very profound phrase I just, I just used, I know. But a great <laughs> example is you know, people say, well, tech stocks are this magical unicorn example of why U.S. is better than the rest of the world, despite the fact that everything's a tech stock at this point. But look at energy. You know, energy has traded as high as a third of the S&P weighting in the past. Last year, it got down to like 2 or 3% weighting over time. And so these, they're like a, it's like a giant swarm of starlings or a thing, a swarm of bees, like it morphs over time. And sometimes 
some countries have a much higher weighting in some sector and sometimes the other. And sometimes you have a country like South Africa that has a company like Naspers that is then a quarter of the index or even higher in some other countries. And so these things, and, and don't even get me started on the sector classifications, you know, sometimes you have companies that don't look remotely like what you would consider to be the sector. And so my whole takeaway from all of this, because people tend to get caught up in the whole U.S. is expensive, don't buy U.S. stocks, which is not my takeaway. My takeaway is the world is your oyster and to go anywhere looking for the best opportunities. And so, for example, historically, buying cheaper companies of higher quality is a much better idea for the last 120 years than buying really expensive, shitty companies with high leverage that are going to go out of business. It just, it's the, I think everyone would agree with that. Warren Buffett, everyone else. And so having the breadth of looking at these things wherever they may be, you mentioned right now, you know, some of our funds are finding a lot more opportunity in certain areas of the world and sectors than others. But that varies over time. And usually the whole takeaway on how does something get to a cheap PE it's because the P usually goes down 50, 80, or 90%. It's usually not the E that's that volatile. And yeah. so if you look at the cheapest countries, you mentioned Russia, single-digit P ratio. Readers will freak out, but the Russian stock market has had equal or better performance in the U.S. stock market the last five years, despite the U.S. multiple shooting up to one of the highest in the world and the Russia being one of the cheapest in the world. So you have any mean reversion. We call this the biggest valuation spread in 40 years between U.S. and foreign. The difference was 40 years ago. The U.S. was cheap and, and foreign was expensive. You have some multiple re-rating and you could have a monster return in some of these countries, sectors, stocks. But again, some of those could be in the U.S. too. If you go back to 99 and recall the 2003, 2000-2003 period, what happened? It was market cap weighting got destroyed Small cap value did fine. Yeah. Dividend stocks did fantastic. Dividends got to be the highest discount on their valuation ever to the broad market in 99. They had a great run the next seven years. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, a couple of things that you're saying have, have got me thinking. I, it's hard for me to, on one hand, study some of the greats who say hold in periods where you would not be comfortable buying an asset, right? That's something that fundamentally I don't fully understand the logic behind of. I think I do understand behaviorally not trying to make as many decisions, right? So if you buy and then you sell, that's two decisions and you have to buy something else and you got to pay taxes. Like I do get that. But to your point earlier about people being valuation agnostic, it feels, and this may not be a correct feeling, but it does feel to me as though not only are they agnostic, some are willingly looking past them in favor of this, you know, just don't sell it, right? Like you can't ever sell a good company. And I don't know, you go from a 3% free cash flow yield to 2% free cash flow yield and then back to three or God forbid four, you need a lot of growth to offset that. I mean, that's, a, that's years of compounding that are taken away. I have not got it if I have a weakness, it's that I'm not very good at holding things that are very rich. So I understand what you're saying. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out because there's always good arguments to justify why valuations are where they are, right? 
I don't know that there's any good arguments. The arguments sound good to me always because here's the reality. If you were to bucket, I can give you two hours worth of examples here and to bore your readers to death. And you've probably heard a few of these stories already. But if you were to put on a slide, and I used to do this, left side is cheap countries. You could do the same thing with cheap stocks. It doesn't matter. You could do the same thing with dividend yields. So by the way, everything I've said today, if you want to test if someone is open-minded about this topic, replace every single time I mentioned CAPE ratio and valuations with the phrase dividend yield. So we did an example where we went in and said, all right, we're doing cyclically adjusted price to dividend yield. So 10-year ratio for dividend yield in country, guess what? Works exactly the same as CAPE ratio does, by the way. So, mm -hmm. and we can get into the nuances of, of dividend buybacks if you want. But the takeaway is that, again, you're existing in this part of the galaxy, which is the, the Venn diagram of the cheap countries, sectors, stocks, whatever, and you're avoiding this galaxy, which is the really expensive stuff. Now, if you look at the really expensive stuff, so today, US market cap weighted stocks, for example, they look amazing because they've been going up for a decade, right? And so career risk of sitting out and hanging out in all these stocks is nil. The stocks on the left side of the chart, the countries, whether it's you ready to, to vomit listeners, it would be Russia, it would be Colombia, it would be Turkey, half of Europe. Uh, meanwhile, you get about a 5% dividend yield in this bucket versus one in the US and an evaluation one third. So two thirds less than the US is currently, but it makes you nauseous going to go buy those because they're all... Takeaway is that the average drawdown in that bucket is like 50% probably, if not more, whereas the stuff that's expensive is all-time highs. It's funny because a lot of what I'm talking about feels like it contradicts all of my trend-following discussions, but my favorite is when those overlap. You have a cheap country that's or a stock or a sector, whatever, a cheap investment that's also going up. That's like the perfect combination of, of the two things in one. But the left side of that table is career risk. And so if you go buy, so these people get off this podcast, they've listened this long and said, all right, call up my advisor, chat with my husband and wife. I'm going to go on Robinhood instead of E-Trade. E-Trade, I think, was my first stock I ever bought, by the way, online. We could send bought E-Trade on E-Trade. I still have yeah. some beef with Robinhood. I bought E-Trade on E-Trade, though. That was just meta example. That is pretty of, meta. All right. So, but if you get off this and say, all right, we're going to buy Russia. We're going to buy Czech Republic. We're going to buy not even any of MEBS funds. We're just going to buy the countries, you know, and they do okay. They do well. Great. They do poorly. You get fired as a financial advisor. Nobody's crazy enough to buy stuff outside the U.S. But again, the a big takeaway is this, is that it's not always the U.S. on the right side of the chart. In fact, that's rare for U.S. to be the sole or high expensive country. You know, usually it's just a wash, a mix of what's going on in the world. Anyway. So, I mean, you've been around long enough that you have a sense of how real career risk is. I've always perceived it to be a very real thing. And one of the comments that was said to me that really stuck out was somebody said, you know, you don't get fired for underperforming in down years. It's when everything's going up and you're and you're lagging. That's when clients leave. I mean, how real do you think 
career risk is it driving these kind of allocation decisions in aggregate? It's extremely real. All the academic literature shows that the vast majority of institutions are just as bad as individuals at chasing returns and on and on and on on plan sponsors. Most people operate on sort of this zero to three year time horizon, and that's the sort of max investment horizon. Now, they may say they have a long time horizon, and there's very, very, very few people and institutions in this world. The late David Swinson is probably the goat here that actually walk the walk when they talk about their time horizons and and how you think about managers. And, And I say this, and it's old hat, so I apologize if you guys have heard this a lot, but I say you make an allocation to an asset class or a strategy Write down the reasons why you made it, but more than likely, that probably needs 10 years before you have any statistical information of that sort of investment being one that isn't just about noise and how it performed. And I think it's probably even closer to 20 years. And you ask most scientists and statisticians and everything else, and they would probably agree with me. And But people are like, that's crazy. Almost every investor, that's crazy. I need, in every survey... We love to do polls on Twitter and everyone is just so sad and depressing because they just confirm the beliefs that I have, which is, you know, people are going to are willing to give an investment a couple years. And that's exactly if you look at all the research we've done on big drawdowns and losses, our very first book, Ivy Portfolio, we did a study that was like pretty joking study, not one that I'd put money to, but it just demonstrates about investing in asset classes after they had multiple down years in a row. Fantastic time to invest in something like U.S. stocks or emerging markets if they had two, three-year down years in a row. We used to do this with industries if they had five or six down years in a row, which is rare, but it happens. And I think the record was has happened twice for coal stocks. And we used to do an annual article, and we haven't done it in a few years because nothing's gone down five years in a row at this point. It's, <laughs> it's we pretty talked much about like just cigarette companies and maybe one or two other things. It was a lot of energy and like ag, yeah. and of course, what's yeah. what's through the roof this year. But we've done it, listeners. You can Google it. The first one was like you should ask for coal stocks in your stocking. We did one on uranium, which is also going through the roof now. But we did a study on the industries in French Fama. You can download this all free data back to the 1920s. Basically, looking at when things were down 60, 80, 90 percent, usually a great time. Close your eyes, hold your nose, and buy and hold. But for buy and hold for three, five years, you know, not for a couple months. But again, you're capturing the same sort of thing we're talking about earlier with valuations, just because of what's gone down so much. The time horizon, I think you alluded to this earlier when you talked about buy and sell decisions. Nobody, almost nobody, establishes their sell criteria when they make an investment. They spend 99% of the time on the buy. And I actually think you could come up, it's pretty simple, I was going to write a paper on this and got distracted, but come up with a random buy entry and you can add on some sell criteria and come up with a totally fine investing system. It would be like a trend following exit. So going back hmm. 300 years to Ricardo, right? Like cut your losses, let your winners run. So you do like so the buy decision being moving average crossover or whatever is a momentum signal for the sell. We did a paper during the pandemic that no one read and because it was during the pandemic, but it was also a fun and interesting paper is U.S. stocks were hitting all-time highs. And the name of the paper was, is buying stocks at all-time high a good idea? No, it's a great idea. 
and listeners at this point are probably spitting out their coffee and being like, Meb, what the fuck? You've just been talking, yeah, droning on for 20 minutes time. about using valuation. Look, go back 120 plus years. If you look at the two biggest pillars for us at Cambria and myself included, one is value as a tenant, common sense anchor for going back to the time of Ben Graham and before, which is funny because everyone applies value in every other element of their life. They'll spend 30 hours searching for a TV They'll spend hundreds of hours looking for a new house, but you want to go log on to your investment account and just buy a bunch of expensive stocks, they'll spend zero time. So they understand value, just often not with investing in the stock market. So value is a pillar that's worked thousands and thousands and thousands of research paper and practitioners. Buffett, my favorite example, right, has demonstrated that it works over time. On the flip side is a equally historical idea when this is the concept of trend following. And this goes back to the time of Charles Dow started the Wall Street Journal and other papers used to write about this. And same thing, a million practitioner as well as academic papers on the topic. That was our original entry into markets was writing academic papers on trend following. And they tend to be sort of yin yang. They can be diametrically opposed, but they can be on the same side often as well. If you look at investments Sometimes, by the way, if you put the U.S. stock market into four quartiles, is it expensive or cheap? Is it in an uptrend or downtrend? And listeners, you can use same sort of things. I say it doesn't even matter what valuation you use, metric you use for stocks, CAPE ratio, enterprise value to EBITDA, cash flows, doesn't matter. Same thing with trend. But the example we'll give is the most often discussed one, 200-day moving average or the monthly equivalent 10-month moving average. So if prices are above, you're an uptrend. If they're below, you're out. You put them into quadrants, not surprisingly, the best market environment in history to be invested is a cheap uptrend. And the worst is, not surprising, an expensive downtrend. But the problem, number two, is an expensive uptrend, which is where we are now, right? Stocks are expensive, but they're going up. And so there's times when the two align, there's times when they don't. Do you ever study Market the turtle spin. traders? Oh, yeah. Because they would buy at breakout highs, right? Wasn't that one of the buy decisions? Right. So all of the trend indicators are like cousins. It's like a family reunion. Same thing with value. It's like, hey, value is the same gene pool. Trend is the same gene pool. And the actual indicator doesn't matter, in my okay. opinion, on either side. We talked earlier, we demonstrated that using 10-year P ratio is basically the same thing as using 10-year price of dividends doesn't really matter. Using a 200-day moving average versus using a 12-month look back, sort of what you call a channel breakout. Again, people were writing about this 70 years ago with Nicholas Darvis and others, but let me give you an example. So in the paper, we said, here's a simple test. Here's the dumbest, laziest investing strategy of all time. What if you just buy a market at all-time highs and update it once a month so you only own it if it's in an all-time high at the end of the month. And then if it declines, and I forget, it was either 5 or 10% below an all-time. Let's, let's call it 10% below an all-time high. You exit. Okay, and so then you, you just have hang a stop out. loss so, in this? Correct. And okay. so something like gold, you may go, I don't know, 30 years just chilling out in cash. The takeaway for trend, by the way, is that the way trend usually works on any individual asset class. So if you say U.S. stocks, trend falling going back to 1900. You get roughly the same return as buy and hold, but it drops the volatility way down and it cuts the drawdown in half. So it's a much more palatable 
return stream because you're not sitting through these really long drawdowns. Hmm. And so when we talk about drawdowns, I mean, the 50 percenters are bad, but we're talking about like the 80 percenters plus in the Great Depression. And people say, well, well, that was 100 years ago. I say, well, go look at every foreign market over the past 20 years and you find them all over the place. You go ask our friends in Greece, in Japan, in Italy, and on and on and on, would they have rather used trend following? And the answer would have been absolutely, because mm-hmm. you dig those huge holes and it's not that different than losing all of your money. If you're down 80, you may as well be down 100 for most people. Yeah. Anyway, but so you use the trend following methodology. You can do it across asset classes. We've always discussed doing it long flat, meaning you get out and you hang out in bonds. The turtle traders from 50 years ago, Jerry Parker probably being the most famous. He's uh, one of my favorite people on the planet. He guests hosts on a podcast, and there's no better way to listen to people that have done, I don't know, probably hundreds of thousands of trades over time in every possible market in the world than some of those turtles. Anyway, so the breakout strategy, very similar to a normal trend indicator, like a 200-day moving average. Now, in the paper, we then one step further, which is a little more modern because most people aren't going to go wait waiting 30 years for something to hit an all-time high. We just said, let's do a 12-month look back. And it creams buy and hold in every asset class, right? Mm. All you do is you buy something if it's at a 12-month high, and if it declines a little bit, you're out. And that sounds too easy, but here's the problem. It's like the old, Buffett says investing is what? What is it? It's simple but not easy. Did I get that right? Or easy but not simple? No, I think simple (laughs) but not easy. Here's the deal with trend. And, and I get equal amount of haters for both the valuation side as well as the trend side. People lose their mind about both. Buy and hold, great investing strategy. We have one of the cheapest asset allocation ETFs on the planet, okay? So obviously we, we like it. We don't do market cap weighting, but it's a totally fine investing strategy. There's a very real Achilles heel with buy and hold investing and investing in US stocks in general. And that is, when it hits the fan, it's highly correlated. So meaning your investments are going down. It's highly correlated with everything else in the world hitting the fan. Think yeah. back to last year. Your stocks are getting creamed. Well, guess what? There's also a pandemic. And guess what? The economy is getting smashed. And guess what? Unemployment just shot up 25% and, and on and on and on. Global financial crisis. Stocks getting smashed. Same thing. You're in a recession. Unempl- I mean, on and on. And so if you think about it from a life sort of perspective, why in the world would you want to put all your eggs in the same basket so then when the bad times happen, all your investments go south too? So buy and hold over very long periods, fantastic. And there's things to do to mitigate that, of course, too. But so it's hard. So it's hard for people when times are bad and everything's going south to just sit there, which is why you see people like last year and in 2009 and in 2003 on and on and on, capitulate and sell everything and then never get back again. We have these conversations with people all the time. Say, Meb, I sold in 2009. I couldn't take it anymore. I never got back in. Yeah. And that is tragedy, right? That's really sad. And now at the highs, I'd like to talk to you about maybe buying with a long time horizon, right? Sure. That's why we say you got to be a student of history if you're going to do investing of any flavor and buy and hold. Every 60-40 portfolio in the world has declined by two-thirds at some point on a real basis. So you got to know what you're in for. Trend following usually 
during the long bear markets and bad times does great. 2008 would have had you totally out, would have got you out of real estate in 2007. You would have sold everything before that. But that's not the problem with trend following. The problem with trend following is you have a low batting average. So we're talking like 40% of your trades are profitable. Mm. It's like death by a thousand cuts, right? It's like the market goes up, it rolls over, slice. Market goes up, rolls over, slice. Or, or what's happened in the US over the past 10 years, was it 2015, 20 on and on, you'll have the market start to decline, you get out and then it rips right back up. Buy the dip, right? That's the, the new phrase of this decade. And so trend following, you look stupid often. But again, going back to the phrase earlier, is it about being right or making money? And so trend following usually saves your bacon when things get really bad. It's probably not going to miss the 10 percenters, may not even miss the 20 percenter, but very, very likely it'll miss the 50, 70, 90 percenters. And so the way compounding works, as everyone knows, is that's what you need to miss. So put the two together, which is what we do, which is what I do with all my money, public assets, half in buy and hold, half in trend following. And so you're like 2020 is a perfect example. Q1, I was like, oh, dear God, thank the Lord I have trend following strategies because it looks like the world is literally going to be zombie apocalypse. Like watching futures every night, markets just feeling like they're going to absolutely implode. Fast forward to Q2, Q3. Thank God I had some buy and hold because these things just rip right back up. Yeah. Anyway, so, so, so with the trend the, following- The two, are, why they sound different, are actually, I think, very, very complimentary. I'm sure that the rules apply differently depending on the strategy and whatever, but you said they're all cousins. So with trend following, there's the initial sort of time that it goes above the 200-day moving average or whatever you're defining as a trend going up. And then, you know, you have the higher highs, higher lows thing. But like in order to catch a trend, do you then also have like a, to your point earlier about the 12-month look back, if you're at an all-time high, just get in on the trend? Is that kind of... Because if you miss the beginning of a trend, you want to capture that middle 70% of a trend, right? In that strategy, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, but so let me let me give you a, a different perspective because we used to get this question all the time and say, Meb, I'm starting today. I got a million bucks. What should I do? 2014, US stocks have had a monster run for the past five years. Is it too late? I feel like entering now, should I wait for it to go below and back above? And we say a lot of things. I mean, one, again, this is what we call the Trinity concept, which is half in buy and hold and half in trend. Is The whole point of that is I spend all my time as a professional money manager, not on the nuances of the investing strategies. I, you know, I actually think that's probably not that difficult of the equation. I spend so much time trying to figure out how to get people to behave and understand the narratives and be educated on not doing the really dumb stuff. Because that's what that's the haymaker, right? It's just yeah. doing the really dumb things. And so the beauty of this approach with a half and buy and hold and half and trend is you're going halvesies. You're never all in or all out. So it removes this gambling mentality, which is a lot of people, by the way, secretly want when they mm -hmm. come to market. Some will straight up tell you, the, the Wall Street bets crowd will tell you that they're here to gamble and speculate, and that's that. Others... There's an old trend follower named Ed Sakota, very pleasantly eccentric fellow, was in the original Market Wizards. He loves to drop a lot of philosophy, but he has a phrase, and I'll, a quote, and I'll paraphrase, but it's basically like everyone gets what they want out of markets. And some people want to lose, and they end up getting that, expressing that through the markets. But that's not all the case. Most people, I think, actually generally want to do well 
and not gamble. So the beauty of this approach, but sorry, getting, no, getting it's all off good. topic. I'm just thinking about what you're saying. And the thing that's ringing out in my head is liquidity, I think, creates a lot of stupidity. Yeah. But as far as when to enter and as far as the trends, I don't think it matters because you never know. So if you look at one of the biggest appreciations, and you guys were talking about this on a recent podcast, and I forget with who, everything in financial markets is driven by power laws. So we just had an earthquake here the other night in LA, 4-7, just a baby, little shaker. And the way that the Richter scale works, right, is that every point up is 10x, you know, so 5-7 is 10 times the 4-7, 6-7 is 10 times the 5-7 or 100 times the 4-7. And that applies to everything in the investing world too. And so tying back together the early part of this conversation, you mentioned indexing, which is a phrase that used to mean something 50 years ago and, and now doesn't mean what it used to mean. But if we talk about market cap weighting in the U.S., which is if you look at buying an index fund in the U.S., which historically has been a fantastic investment, and I think it still is a good investment, the weighting methodology is simply price. It's the ultimate trend-following index. You yeah. own a stock. If as it goes up, you own more. As it goes down, you own less. You eventually get stopped out at zero or it gets kicked out, right? Yeah. That's literally a trend-following system, and it works because you own the big winners, Amazon, Apple, all these guys that are up around $1, 2000000000000 trillion now. And you own less of the losers. Enron eventually gets to be a smaller and smaller piece, and, and then it's gone. But that applies to everything. It applies to startup investing. And you guys mentioned this. There's a lot of historical research, and some of my favorite papers of the past decade have been on this topic, which is a small percentage of stocks determine the outcome. And it's a shockingly small percentage, 5%, 10%-ish. The original authors of this study and I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. The first time I ever saw it mentioned was some guys at Blackstar, Cole Wilcox, Eric Crittenden, and they wrote about this topic. They called it the capitalism distribution. You then saw it repurposed in academia, JP Morgan, et cetera. I've never seen anyone reference them, which depending on how you describe it in the academic world, would be called plagiarism. In the modern world, I'd just be calling a total, total California, I'd just call it a total dick move. But it's just this like this, understanding that a small percentage of stocks create the outcome, okay? That's true in trend following too. So if you talk to these turtle traders from 50 years ago, they'd be like, all my profits last year were from shorting the pound or long euro dollar, short wheat. My God, did you see what happened to wheat? You know, you have these, a lot of these little small losses and then just these enormous winners. And the enormous winners can last a long time. The S&P 500 trend has been up for the better part of the last decade. There's been a couple out-ins, but a trend follower in S&P has, has done a great job. You survived and you've, you've done well. So as far as when you get in, when you exit, it's unknowable future, of course. But there's an important part to this, which is why it works. And we could talk about the statistical reasons why it works. You know, Again, if you go negative side of compounding, the kink usually happens around minus 20. Yeah, I like but how you describe this. Like just like mentally, I like how you describe that. How you say like the The pain. worse it gets when it gets to 50, you need 100% game to get back to even. You have a Japan scenario, US scenario, you lose 75, you need 300% get back to even. I think this is almost like an ethics violation, but you see people all the time report, what if you just miss the 10 best days in the market, your returns terrible, therefore market timing is impossible. Hmm. Well, that's true. 
But you should also say, what happens if you miss the 10 worst days? Your return's amazing. And guess what? Both of those happen when the market is already declining. So we did an old paper. I can't even remember the name of it. I think it was called, What If Sir Isaac Newton Was a Trend Follower? And it talked about bubbles. And I said, I love bubbles. That's where people make a ton of money. Trend followers, right? You have these exponential moves up in investments. But at some point, you got to get out. And the party ends, the punch bowl gets taken away, time to go home, closing time, whatever it is, two in the morning. So we demonstrate, we say, look, what are the properties of markets when they're an uptrend? And it's copacetic, mellow times, markets are going up. What are the properties when they're going down? The volatility explodes. Yeah. And so why, and there's lower returns too, but really it's just the volatility is stretched. So why do you have, it's like, three quarters of the worst days occur when the market's below a long-term trend measure. But three quarters of the best days also occur. And it's this volatility clustering. But the irony is that if you miss both by being in trend-following system and sitting in, in bonds or cash, you end up with a higher compounded return with lower volatility and drawdowns. Hmm. So you want to avoid the craziness in, the, in these type of markets. So what would that be today? I imagine you're out of China, you're long <laughs> most everything else. I think you'd be out of gold and miners. I'm not sure about ag. Space metals and energy's up. Foreign U.S. is up. But again, you tie this all into psychology and behavioral. Well, it's why does the volatility explode when things are going south? Well, it's common sense. You look around last year, 2009, people lose their mind, right? They use a different part of their brain when they're losing money, when things are uncertain and going crazy than they do when they're making money. They're making money. What are they doing? They're talking about vacation. They're looking at buying things like JPEGs. They're looking at telling their neighbor how smart they are. They're going on Twitter, bragging about how much money they made. What happens when times are bad? People don't open their statements. They don't go to their neighbor and say, man, you know, it was really smart buying this stock that went down 80%. I'm such an idiot. Like people don't, they, they have this sort of signaling and bragging method. But it's literally like a flight response. Yeah. And if for those of you who have never lost big money, it's a great experience to have. Hopefully, it's when you don't have much and you're young. We've all had it. And the best traders have plenty of scars and, and are humble. And I'll end with a there's a great phrase that I attributed to Mark Yusko. I basically attribute all my favorite quotes to him, whether he said them or not, or Morgan Housel. <laughs> but he says, you know, every investment makes you richer or wiser, but it's never both. Yeah. And so thinking about the losing money, great education, but you can avoid that usually with the, with the trend following ideas. Jason Buck and I have been talking about this concept a fair amount and like adding convex hedges and trying to figure out, I don't know, I, I exist in large part in an echo chamber of stock only, long only thought. And I think that there's a lot of merit in it. Here's how I'll be precise with my language. I think there's a lot of merit in wanting to own interests in businesses for the long term. Certainly there has been over my entire life, though being a child of the early 80s, I've also seen rates come down my entire life, right? So, and all my heroes have, there's a fair amount of survivorship bias in it, but they've all done it too. The future is fundamentally uncertain. So putting all my eggs in a basket, I know the saying, put it all in a basket and watch it closely. I just kind of wonder how much survivorship bias is in that statement too, right? Uh, having a little bit of a hedge is a good thing. It's a pretty thoughtful self-awareness. And I think 
despite all my pretty strongly held views of many things we talk about today, there's a million investing approaches that are totally fine. If you were to tell me, call me up today, say, Meb, I buy a bunch of commercial real estate. I don't use leverage. Meb, I buy a bunch of dividend stocks. I just dollar cost average in them. Meb, I asset allocation, whatever. Like it's, if it works for you, cool, great. The biggest fracture occurs when people don't understand the investing approach and how it has performed in the past. Like a great example, we ask people say, what do you think the biggest drawdown in bonds has been after inflation and most or T-bills, you know, your safe money? What do you do with it? How, what do you think the biggest drawdown has been? And most people say like 5%, zero. And the answer is half. Do like 50% on your safe money after inflation over time. Another one is like, how long do you think stocks have gone? So going back to expectations, we say, people say, you know, I invest three-year time horizon. I say, how long do you think stocks have gone underperforming bonds before? And most people, it's like five years and they've gone decades. Last year, they went, I think it was 40 years, four zero, 40 years, four decades with almost the exact same return as long bonds did. And there's periods where I think it's, I think 68 plus years where stocks have underperformed bonds. And so that's a long time, right? You yeah. and I are going to be well over a hundo, probably, if that happens this go around. So we'll, we'll look back. And- I hope I make it that long. <laughs> I was just talking to my wife how I might be over half of my life done. That would be sad. We'll be doing some hologram, you know, like head in the glass jar discussion. Be like, man, that was crazy period, wasn't it? Right? Like that, <laughs> that big Mars civil war that happened and investing in, you know, who knows? Anyway. I've said a couple times, man, I've said this, the statement that I've said, and I wish I was more precise, is I've said, if I lose to an ETF, I wouldn't be able to look myself in the mirror. What I actually mean by that is the market cap weighting and the amount of valuation on a number of businesses that I am not smart enough to understand if I were to make that market cap weighted bet, knowing that I don't understand it and knowing all of the valuation statistics that you've pointed out, and I lost on that because it was like, quote unquote, the smart thing to do, I could never look myself in the mirror. That's why I just gotta, can't like market cap weight index. But you got to remember, there's two ways to do something about this. I mean, Bogle, before he passed away, this is quite a bit of a ramp in stocks ago. I mean, he said he expected U.S. stocks to do about 4% the coming decade because of the valuations. And people are just like, wait, what? You know, and the takeaway for him wasn't, hey, sell all your U.S. stocks. He's like, just ratchet down your expectations. Yeah. And his formula, which he wrote about in the 90s and we talk a lot about, is very simple and it works incredibly well. It's starting dividend yield, earnings growth, change in valuation. And you can go back in history and plug all those numbers in and deconstruct it, but that it's probably going to get you pretty close to a, a goose egg this next decade. Now, the opportunity is, could look amazing, anything other than market cap. That's like what we talk about. And market cap waiting, this is the funny part, is if you think about a totally nonsensical investing strategy with no relation to fundamentals, that's it, right? Yeah. And historically, market cap waiting is super suboptimal because the largest stocks in an index, market cap weighted, doesn't matter if it's sectors, if it's countries, if it's the global market cap, underperform that index that they're in by about three percentage points per for the next 10 years. So just avoiding the big stuff, which is big because price went up, is one of the basics you can do. That's why equal weighting outperforms over time. 
weighting based on dividends, weighting based on anything else, should do about a percent or two. But the takeaway is, Bill, you need to launch your own ETF. No, I'm not getting in the financial management game, man. That's come on. I don't dude. mind financial entertainment. I have no desire to uh, launch financial products. I'll leave that to people like you and Corey. We can do it anonymously. Okay. Let me tell you something funny that well, funny depending on. I'll, I'll co-sponsor the TOK ETF. That I'll do. Isn't that you know yours? we've done a dozen. Yeah, yeah, we've done a dozen funds thus far, and we exist in this little corner of the world where. I want to exist where we're only launching funds that don't exist or we think we could do much better or much cheaper. And people will say cheaper is rare these days, but our funds on average are 30 to 40% cheaper. Every single one of them is cheaper in their category mm -hmm. average. And in some cases, it's the cheapest fund in the category. The one you just referenced, cheapest fund in the category. Second, it's got to be based on academic or practitioner research. Third, I got to want to invest my own money into it. The average mutual fund manager has zero zero dollars invested in their fund. And lastly, the hardest part for me is always, does anyone else want it? So we have about a dozen strategies I'm looking at my whiteboard that are queued up that don't exist, that are pure blue ocean opportunity. But the hard part is, does anyone actually want it? And I, the answer for many of these is, I don't know, we'll find out. But during the pandemic, we had done a new filing last year. And I like teasing the investment space because we all take ourselves very seriously. It's a lot of egos out there, but the reality is, is market cap weighting still is pretty hard to beat for a lot of the professional managers. And the reason is not because it's market cap weighting. The reason is because it's delivered at no cost. Okay. So the fee is the big differentiator. Hmm. The old Bogle quote, the conflict of interest in this industry is not passive versus active. It's high cost versus low cost. Vanguard actually manages more active funds than they do passive. They even have a fund that charges over 1%. Anyway. See, I thought that you were going to say is because it's inherently trend following. And then if you layer on some of these current valuation multiples, it would favor a trend following momentum strategy. Let me finish this thought because I'll My forget apologies. it if I don't. Um, we did this filing. And you may not be old enough to remember, but the, the no hairs, gray hairs listen to this will be Wall Street Journal used to do a dart throwing index contest, not contest, where they would throw darts against the wall, pick stocks, and then compare it to professional money managers. And often, not surprisingly, the randomness of this world, going back to that old study, two-thirds of stocks underperform the broad index. So you're at a disadvantage just chucking them against the wall, right? About half have a 0% rate return over their lifetime, and about a third or a quarter, I can't remember which, basically good as zero. But if you start chucking against the wall, just the randomness nature, you may get some of those that 10x, 50x, right? And it's delivered at no cost. And so we were going to file and, and we still plan. I say, if we get to like 5 billion or 10 billion in assets, I'll launch this and just subsidize it. <laughs> the ticker could be Dart or Monkey or Random. We have all three. But basically, we throw a big party each year, charge people, I don't know, like a thousand bucks to come and throw a dart against the wall and that stock ends up in the portfolio for the next year. That'd and I'll just subsidize fun. it. It'll be low cost, whatever. <laughs> Thought it was a little tone deaf as as the world was sliding into the yeah, ocean that, last Maybe March, wasn't but, the best time to do it. But the random walk ETF will make its appearance one day. And I'm guessing it's going to beat most of these high fee managers anyway. <laughs> Are you going to take that to the endowments that you manage when you manage them as well? We have an endowment fund file too. What Bill's referencing, I spend a lot of time poking the traditional 
high fee, complex investing world where most of the academic literature shows that a lot of these big money institutions would be better off just buying a bunch of ETFs, doing an asset allocation, and just being done with it. Okay. You can replicate the hedge fund space, you can replicate the private equity space. There's a ton of research that shows this. But these giant institutions, so we've written articles called Should CalPERS Be Managed by a Robot? Should Harvard Be Managed by a Robot? How to Replicate Bridgewater's All Weather Fund? And the takeaway is actually it's incredibly simple to replicate all of them, but none of them do it. So I've offered on Twitter and elsewhere, I say, look, if you guys want, I'm more than happy to manage your endowment for free. We actually launched, let's see how many years ago is it now, seven years ago this Christmas, the world's first no-fee ETF. So it's a fund of funds. So all in, it's like 30-something basis points. It's been a big success on the performance side, a bad success on the asset raising side. (laughs) It's one of those no one wants it type things. Well, it's all in one. It's like an all in one fund. It's asset. So it gives you a global allocation. So the global market portfolio, if you just went out and bought it. So if we convince Bill, he needs to be a little more global in nature and get out of Florida. You were to go buy the world, all the public assets in the world. It's roughly half stocks, half bonds, half US, half foreign. And that's market cap weighted. It's missing a couple key asset classes that are just hard to invest in publicly, like farmland, like single family housing. But in general, It's an amazing portfolio and it's really hard to beat. It Hmm. beats the vast majority of institutions over time because it's got everything. And so we implement it with tilts towards value and momentum. So this buy and hold asset allocation fund has it all and it rebalances for you. And I think will beat most institutions over time. Now, there's an added benefit that a lot of people don't understand. And this gets into this concept of short lending as became Mm. popularized by the broker that you and I have such a massive disdain for, where the vast majority of public funds, if they do short lending like ours, we return it all to the investors. And so a fund like this, which is in 30-ish basis points, total cost all in, does like, I think it was something like 20 some basis points of short lending revenue. So you're down to a net of like 10 basis points-ish on total cost of the investor. Now there's some funds like the cannabis strategy you mentioned earlier that does like 300 basis points of short lending revenue. So the takeaway is that most of the good guys do this and return it all. I think there's an opportunity in the brokerage world to deliver sort of some solutions there as well, as long as like the long-term period coffee can portfolio you're talking about. But yeah, I think so far, none of the endowments have taken me up on it. We got some institutions that own the fund, but no one is yet. And I said, all I have to do, show up at the yearly review, we'll rebalance, have some brews and call it a day. Bad news is we'll fire everyone and, and get rid of all the hedge funds and private equity. But the good news is it'll be a lot simpler. Yeah, you're not gonna make many friends with that pitch. I mean, you might make some friends if you can get through to the end user, but there's a lot of, you're dealing against a lot of incentives with this one, Meb. Well, the entire, I mean, look, if you look back, we did this post years ago, you look at the asset allocation industry and which way it's moving. Every year, it's this just alligator jaw getting bigger and bigger of all these legacy garbage products that are super expensive, riddled with conflicts of interest, just been sold to people. And as people die, as they get divorced and pass on, they don't go back to buying that 2% S&P 500 index fund. Like yeah. that just doesn't happen. So they 
eventually get sunset and the world's hopefully moving. I think it's no better time to be an investor than today, but there's still like a trillion allocated to these do nothing, buy and hold funds. My anger is not towards the people that are concentrated and doing super weird things. Like you at least can hopefully distinguish yourself. But for a lot of the, the people that are by definition do nothing, yeah, it's the closet indexers, right? And then charging big fees, and you're not really doing anything except for extracting value from the system. We share disdain from that, or for that. So how'd you get so into private, or not private equity, venture capital? Was like, Has the podcast helped with deal flow, or was that, I'm sure it's a number of things, but that's a big part of what you enjoy doing now, right? So the beauty, as you know, of being a podcast host is you get to indulge all of your curiosities. You can. We're doing a, a series right now on the podcast about startup investing in Africa, for example. And we talk a lot about subjects in me, like farmland, like space. I come from a family of aerospace people. And so the beauty is you can just ring someone up and say, hey, you want to talk for an hour? Like 10 years ago, if you just like email a Nobel laureate and be like, hey, you want to rap for a little bit? Yeah, they'd be they'd like, be no like, way, man. <laughs> pound sand, no. Yeah. So anyway, it's been a lot of fun. But the startup investing, which started, I think, in 2014, and, and most of our followers, we've kind of dragged along the adventure. The goal that I had stated in the beginning was that, so I'm a quant. I put all of my public assets into our strategies. I own the vast majority of my money in one fund. Not a lot of people do that, but it's a diversified fund of funds. So it's everything in one. I think actually most people probably should spend, unless it's their hobby and they care about it, almost no time on their public investing portfolio. Just set it, forget it, put it on automation, save and invest. Thanks for uh, ruining my listening and, base. I appreciate and, that. And well, no, I said, <laughs> unless you're interested, unless you're interested, it's a different scenario. Yeah, yeah. But the vast majority of individuals, we did a post called like, what's the best way to increase yield on your portfolio? It's to spend no time on it. And this magical, what, what should you be spending time on? The average person is getting a better job, asking for a raise, doing things that you would rather be doing like golf or play with your children, whatever, going out to dinner, avoiding your children, depending on, on who you're talking to. But I have an endless curiosity. And the biggest problem with public markets is a constant stream. And depending if you listen to me in the beginning, I hope the takeaway was not pessimism, but rather optimism that the world's ending. And, and it's just, it's like a constant just negativity. And, and part of that's just the news cycle in general, flicking on, you know, what like, it's just negative, negativity. And if you try to pull out, what are we trying to do here as investors? You want to invest in amazing businesses that are changing the world, that are sloughing off a ton of cash. They're finding that product market fit and they're turning into a rocket ship, right? And you want to be invested for a long time and hold them forever. The opportunity in my mind, so I got the public markets covered in my mind with our, our quant funds and what we do. But on the private side, I'd never had that much experience. So I want to get educated. So I'm going to start to dip my toe into angel investing. And this was circa 2014. And I said, we just did a long article about this called Journey to 100X that summarizes it for listeners. And I said, I want to learn. So my goals up, up front are to learn, learn all the good, interesting people to fall in this world, start to make some investments, become educated. If I break even, great. If I lose money, that's okay. I'll see it as tuition. And if I beat the S&P, gravy. Fast forward, what is that, seven years now? have invested in over 300 startups. And wow, you're that up to 300? Like, 
that may sound like a lot and detractors would say, well, you're just doing spray and pray. But what I've come to appreciate it, this is a change for me. And this is a muscle that I continually have to work against. And this is one of my favorite phrases we used in this piece that I have been incorporating to other aspects of, of our investing world is it's not a unique insight, but it's the critical insight, which is if you look at the distribution, going back to what we were talking about with stock returns, and the same thing applies to startups, but on steroids, and all these venture capital funds and all these startup funds, and we're talking at the seed stage, so investing in companies at about a 10 million market cap, 5 million even. You know, some I think the lowest I did was like two. All your returns comes from the handful of investments that did 100x, yeah, maybe 1,000x. Yeah. The Ubers of the world, right? If you talk about investing, and this actually goes back to the CAPE ratio discussion earlier, and you talk about what does it mean to be right? Because there's so much randomness in our world, and you ask any good speculator or gambler, and you say, so like you buy stocks at price ratio of 10 or CAPE ratio of 38, and they go, CAPE ratio goes to 50. And you say, well, Meb, you're an idiot. You were wrong. Stocks went up because of valuation. I say, well, if you went down to the poker table, and or the blackjack table and you made a really stupid move but it worked out for you were you right well no it was the wrong move you just got lucky in the randomness of it so anyway looking at startup investing you have to place enough bets to give you the chance of hitting those um, yeah. big investments and i mean we're talking and so people that do it with only like 10 investments even 20 odds are not in your favor so it's been an amazing experience. I mean, every day you see these killer companies that are doing, it's beneficial because it also applies to your life. I've incorporated so many of these into our business world and into my professional, but a big benefit. And again, this is a feature, not a bug, is you can't sell them. Yeah. And so if you look at one of my favorite investing books, what's it called? It's uh, 100 Baggers, but is a derivation of 101 in the stock market. If you look at the public companies that 100X'd, Berkshire, Monster, on and on. It takes them like a decade, yeah, you know, or more to 100x. Some of these 20 years. I like compounding books, it, by the way, real quick, but 100 to 1 seasoned really well. Like mm -hmm. I read that and I was like, man, this was written a long time ago and it still sounds very, very good. 100, uh, 100 Beggars yeah. was great too. Chris did a great job. But I, I agree with you. The the illiquidity forces really good behavior and gives the runway that these companies need to prove themselves, right? Yeah. And some of them pivot after you invest. You know, it's always fun to watch just what happens. And some, you know, of course, like it's like trend falling. So the, the weird part is if you look at the sort of the Venn diagram of startup investors and traditional managed futures trend followers, there's very little overlap. I mean, if you were to build like the perfect long vol portfolio, it's a lot of similarity between those two investments the methodology is almost identical can you explain why? Just, why why would that well, be the it's, perfect it's long long vol lots it's lots of little losses and then eventually mm. you have just the monster gains okay now the trend following portfolio the managed futures theoretically what's the big risk to the startup portfolio or the vc it's long bear market bad times in the economy right the exits dry up there's not 200 SPACs puking them out. There's not Tiger Global pouring giant funnel of dollars down everyone's throats to the rounds A through Q. 
It's the lean times, right? But the managed futures, theoretically, during the lean times, is going to be short everything. And so it's a natural balance mm -hmm. between the two where managed futures usually does fantastic during bad times. Anyway, so I used to always say, I mean, you could probably find a blog post from a, over a decade ago on my blog about, I said, why does the average venture capital fund or investor not hedge their investments with trend following? Because the assumption every CalPERS makes is that their private equity and venture capital portfolios will generate top quartile alpha. Now, despite the fact that most of mm. the persistence has gone away between the top managers, and despite the fact that the valuations in late stage private equity are the highest they've ever been now, their assumption is they can pick the top quartile because the average private equity and VC is just S&P, hmm. okay? And then there's a lot more downside. Yeah. And there's a bunch of institutions that have done research. Was it Rockefeller put out one that was just like, we've been terrible at this. We've been doing this for 30 years and it's, it's, we're awful. Hmm. So I'm always surprised that they don't do some sort of trend following methodology on private equity or venture capital. But there's one more really important aspect of the startup investing that could be getting nuked by the recent tax legislation. Which I was is the, just going to ask you about this because I wanted to touch on this. If you look at our writings and... Most of our books are free to download online. Our Global Asset Allocation book talks a lot about this. Again, going back to not unique insight, but critical, where like the number one determinant of your asset allocation portfolio isn't the asset allocation. I think that's actually somewhat irrelevant. And I don't know a single person on the planet that agrees with me on this, but it's a strongly held belief. As long as you have some of the main ingredients, stocks, bonds, real assets, but what you pay in fees and taxes. Boring as hell, but we could actually demonstrate that that's likely true. Happy to get into it if you want. But but the point is taxes, fees determine so much in our world and taxes very likely going up in for most investors. There is a tax provision that was in the, got passed during Obama called QSBS that if you invested in a startup, so less than 50 million in size, held it for five years, the first 10 million in gains was is tax-free hmm. or 10x the investment, whichever is greater. And so if you can build a portfolio that even matches the S&P on a post-tax yeah, basis. Tax -free. Yeah. It's going to help. Yeah. Taxes are and my I Achilles think, heel, man. I got too much turnover in my portfolio. You just need some more losers. What's the problem is you got too many gains. <laughs> I don't know that that's, uh, gotta, that's not the takeaway that I'm trying to have, but I like it. Yeah. Get some of these stinkers out there. It's kind of checks all these amazing boxes where it's you buy it, you just put it away. Can't do anything with it, even if you wanted to. So you get liquidity when it goes public, gets bought, or goes out of business. And that's it. But to me, that's like the way a lot of investing should be. On top of that, you're not paying any taxes, which is astonishing. It's like a 1031 exchange for real estate, except you don't even have to pay any. Now, I think this has been one of the most innovative tax policies for the innovation we've seen in the past decade in the US. I think a lot of this has pushed a ton of money into startups. So you see this absolute just explosion of incredible companies. Part of that's the market environment, and you may not be able to attribute it all to QSBS, but I think it certainly helped on the investing side at the early stage. It's fun to look into. It's one that politicians are going to be politicians, so we'll see if it survives. I hope so. 
how involved with, I mean, you're in 300 private investments. How often are you talking to the founders and stuff? Is it fairly passive for you or do you get more active in certain ones? I got to think there's some. It's passive. If it's in my circle of competence, which is, is pretty limited, I'll certainly happy to chat with them. I mean, I, I love talking with them on the podcast. We've probably had a couple dozen of the founders on the podcast, some of which have gone on, just been absolute rocket ship unicorns. There's been a few that just, I mean, my God, are, are probably worth one, five plus billion dollars wow. now that, you know, was seed investments at, at 10 million bucks. That's um, cool, man. And yeah, so it's fun to watch. I mean, it's exciting. At the end of the day, you're investing in these amazing startups and there's literally nothing harder in the world to be an entrepreneur. My God, it is exhausting. It's the worst <laughs> experience that <laughs> anybody can do is start a business. And being a portfolio manager is pretty darn similar, right? You, It's a 24-7 thing you live with. But So you figured I'll just marry both those, huh? I'll, yeah. I will well, no, but, but, but that's, if you were to ask me 10 years ago, I used to think all the ideas I had, all the startup concepts. I was like, I have to do these like on my own, you know, like I have to start this company. Why doesn't someone do this? I got to do this. And then now I realize, well, it's way more fun to, <laughs> to watch other people do it. Way less work. People that are way more motivated than I am and probably more capable in some of these scenarios to do some pretty killer stuff. But going back to what we were talking about earlier, when I was saying the biggest challenge I have here is the muscle of seeing a good investing opportunity that you look at the numbers, oh man, this is a high conviction double or even a 510X. In the stock market, that is like a, a, a dream come true, right? You're like, oh my God, this is, I can see there's no way this doesn't double in the next year. And then realize if you're doing the approach we're talking about, even if it does double, it's gonna have minimal impact on your actual outcome. Why is and that? so really looking for the ones that have to go or have oh, the potential you to need go a hundred yeah. times. Yeah. Right. That that rocket ship out. I mean, it still would help. And and a lot of people look, this is a personal preference. A lot of people exist at sort of that series A, B, C, where they're de-risked. The companies are trading at a hundred million, three hundred million, five hundred million. They're growing. Everything looks good. I like to operate at sort of the post-formation, they have a little bit of traction, probably a million bucks in revenue, they're growing, and it's a cool-ass idea. Hmm. But that's personal. Other people like to exist even before that pre-seed, which I think is really hard. I don't like that. And then later stage is a lot easier for others. Anyway, it's a great experience to even, I tell people all the time, I say, just go sign up. You don't have to invest and just read the deals. I've reviewed, it's like 5,000 deals now. And you start to pick up some pretty interesting takeaways, even if you don't invest in any. I think it's it's a useful experience. Do you think that seed sort of resonates with you, just given the fact that you started your own thing? Do you think there's something in you that like identifies with that? Maybe. I mean, I think part of it is it's sort of the right number as far as scale. You know, if if you're at like 10 million bucks, which by the way, in the last year is, is slowly drifting up to like 20. Hmm. I saw, I've seen a few 50, 80, a hundred million dollar seeds recently, which feels a little bananas. Part of it is just the arithmetic. Is it easier to go from 10 million to a hundred million billion than it is from a billion to a hundred billion? Yeah. You know, I think so, but I don't know that that's certainly the case. I, despite being a trend follower and being willing to have lots of losses, a little losses, I still don't like the feeling of 
investing in just like pipe dreams that are pre-product or pre-launch. That's hard for me. So I, that's sort of the pre-seed area. That doesn't mean that I haven't done some that are later stage or earlier stage. Just the vast majority of those 300 are, are uh, sort of right around seed. Yeah. Well, you got to get to know the market, right? And know what you're looking for. So I would think that staying in an area that, that resonates with you makes a lot of sense. I've wondered... I talk about it a lot, but one of the guys from The Motley Fool, David Gardner, I almost think he has brought a similar type feeling to the public markets and how he looks for investments that are already public. And what you alluded to earlier about now the Series D, E, F, whatever, the valuations are so large, I kind of wonder how much juice is going to be left for some of the public markets on on some of these deals. But, you know. I was I was joking on Twitter. I said, "What comes after Series Z?" I was yeah. like, "There's got to be a company that's is it like Excel where it goes Series AA, Series Z one, <laughs> like it it just breaks the model." But you see these rounds, and the funny part is, so many of these companies get seduced by this sort of Silicon Valley world, and their goal is to raise the next round. Whereas the ideal investment, if you look at like Mailchimp recently, sold for what twelve billion dollars to my single least favorite company in the entire world which is into it, they never raise capital. So like if, if as an mm. investor, the best thing you want is invest in a company, they never raise money again, they rocket ship, right? Like they're capital efficient. They get everything from product market fit and growth. Yeah. Whereas so many founders today, I feel like their goal is to just go raise more money, which it's plentiful right now. That's for certain. But the dilution and the media always gets this wrong about reporting returns, but the dilution is a, is a very real and it applies to public markets too, with share issuance. I was talking with somebody that was talking about some of the pushback he was getting from some investors. And the pushback was, you're making too much money. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting comment of where we are right now, right? Where the argument is not make money for yourself. It's throw off product as fast as you possibly can to prove out that you're growing and that will warrant a higher valuation. I think there's probably yeah. some merit in the comment, but I also don't think that you see those kinds of comments in, say, 2010, 2009. It's interesting, man, because Toby and I, we chop it up every week, and I am hesitant to say, like, oh, boy, this is the late cycle, and it's time to you know really be careful. But on the other hand, if NFTs and crypto and these valuations were indicative of a top when we're all looking back at it, People are going to say, boy, it was obvious. Speculation is in plain sight. Maybe that's the best way to if, say if it. If you go down the list, and, and this goes back to the beginning conversation with the, the charts and the thread, it's like really hard to read this list and come to the conclusion that things aren't totally bananas. And so with expectations, with sentiment, if you look at the allocation of U.S. stocks as a percentage of the portfolios, the highest it's ever been. If you look at our friends, the short sellers, they're basically extinct. You know, the average company has like the lowest short interest ever. If you look at small traders, what are they trading? They're trading options and garbage meme stocks and on and on and on and on. And so you, I'm sure you've heard me say this, but my favorite, my chart of the year for 2021 is from Robico, which is goes to the French Fama folks, which looked at the value factor cheap versus expensive. And historically it works great, but the worst year it ever had was 1999. Not surprisingly, that was the final just blow off capitulation of that market. 
But the best year it ever had in 120 years was in 2000, post-peak, until 2020. 2020 was worse for the value factor than 1999. And so far, 2021 is playing along with 2000 playbook. So value is doing great this year. It's kind of this summer is, seems to have taken a, a summer vacation, but the expensive stuff hasn't come down. So it's not, the, not that the spread is really narrowing on the expensive side. It's just the cheap had a great begin to the year. So we'll see if that continues, you know, the sort of 01, 02, 03, or if it's just a, a momentary blip in, in this March higher, but we'll see. Yeah. I like the idea of the characteristics of a lot of these companies that are killer companies that just happen to be way cheaper than what you find at the top of the market cap heap. It's been interesting to watch. I was talking with our mutual friend about what he's seeing in his portfolio, and he and I have similar thoughts. If if we are in a idea that is like a second-tier player in the market, has a little bit of leverage and any hair at it at all, it's just all been puked together. And we were mm-hmm. we were talking about a number of names. And, I mean, you can chart them. They're, they're just trading together. And then, actually, you can throw the pot stocks on top of that. It's almost as if it's like one huge risk-off move, which has yeah. been interesting to watch even pre-today. But this has been in large part because I was over-allocated relative to what my history has been. But this has been the biggest drawdown of my career coming into. Mm. And that includes last March. But that's I had more beta exposure. But, you know, whatever. I did. The companies that I own haven't changed, just the people's appetite to own the stocks have. So at least I hope. That's my favorite book that really d- describes the last year we've mentioned is, is Kurt Vonnegut's Galapagos, which A, has the benefit of being about a global pandemic, but B, the financial markets go crazy. I have the quote on my blog, but he, he ends it. He's like, why did all these things happen? Why did all these markets crash and this, that, and the other. And he's like, the land was still as moist and nurturing. The people is all the same with the exception of like all that changes people's opinion. It's so funny to see the narrative change of what people are really excited about and really depressed about. And and you go through these cycles and it feels like it just keeps happening over and over. I mean, you travel to some of these countries we mentioned the personal example for me was Colombia, where it was trading at a P ratio. I went down to give a talk in Bogota. It was like 40 or something. And now it's at, I think, low teens. Hmm. And everyone was just fat and happy and rich. And oil money was coming out of their ears when that market was was just cranking. And then the challenge is the catalyst is always obvious in retrospect. You know, it's never obvious to me at the time. Like, I don't know what turns this. If it happens this year, it happens in 2025. And so part of this whole fun thing that we do every day is you have to have an appreciation for history so to know what's possible. So you see these gyrations in China and say, well, look, I at least know in the 1940s, they totally shut down their capital market and went to zero. So is it possible? It is likely probably not. And also you have to be a little bit of a comedian and, and have a sense of humor and humility to where you understand that things are going to be weirder and different in the future. And we've had like five of those in the past five years that have never happened before in the U.S. stock market. So it's always going to surprise, you know, one one way or the other. Yeah. 2017 was bizarre, man. Just like that march up every single day. It was like, oh, 
everything in the portfolio is green. Set a record for most up months in a row. And if you recall back to election night, I remember Trump, the futures tanking, right? The famous Carl Icahn moment. But yeah. I mean, I think it was, was it like 16 months in a row? I would have to search, but I think it, it set the record for consecutive. And it was the first year in history where the uh, stock market went up every single calendar month. Yeah, that's wild. You want to do a couple things you believe that most people don't, and then I'll let you out of here? I don't know how short that's going to be. We can spend a lot of time on that. How, we, about, uh, how about the Fed has do done it. a good job? Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, look, the, on, if you look at the spectrum of topics I have opinions out, there's some that I'm extremely opinionated on that people should use valuation in general. I don't care how you do it, but I'm extremely opinionated on. I think it's more important to pay attention to fees and taxes than broadly speaking what you invest in at the macro level. On the flip side, there's stuff where I'm like, you know what, I don't have a strong opinion. And one of which was, which probably gets you on TV more than anything and sounds great is like the universal hatred of the Fed. And I had said this to, I was right out of college. I remember I was longboard skateboarding with a, in San Francisco with a chief economist at a big investment bank. And which is something you do in San Francisco, right? Like, I like that. Is that the most San Francisco thing? Like here, it would be like you go surfing with someone and, and we were chatting markets. And I said, you know what? I don't understand. Why doesn't the Fed just automate interest rates? Meaning they just like tie it to a certain level. And he's like, it's a totally reasonable question. Like, I think it's not other than expectations. No reason not to automate it. You could come up with the models that would create an expectation of it. So I don't have a strong opinion. I think the levels of interest rates probably too low. Yeah, I think so. But I, I don't know that it's kind of hard to play out what would have happened otherwise, right? We only yeah. get one one shot at moving through this in real time. And the U.S. seems to be surviving and doing okay. But I, but I also have no problem with the creative destruction of the bad times. You know, to me, that's part of it. Part of capitalism and the beauty of competition is firms fail and ideas fail. And that's why we get the the ones that bubble up and become Apple and Amazon and everything else, you know? So bear markets to me are a normal, healthy part of the wash cycle. And if you get rid of those, to me, that's troublesome. Now, it doesn't mean everything they've done, I agree with. And, and we've written a lot of articles on policy, one recently called How to Narrow the Wealth and Income Gap. But in general, I don't have the universal hatred, I think, that uh, everyone else does. And, and the, the, the part for me that I always struggle with for people is that are so angry about the Fed distorting markets, I often say, well, they're telling you what they're going to do. You can't take advantage of that as an investor. That's kind of on you, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you understand what they're up to. Anyway, what about- I should have just said pass on that one. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. I mean, look, I, you know, I don't know. I defended the government last March, so I got plenty of hate over that. I was called some sort of crony capitalist or whatever. So I The problem, I the problem with the government- the hard part I have, and everyone can be on the side of hating the government, is that there's no continuity. That's the frustrating part to me. Like everything is needlessly complex. I was talking about Intuit, which I hate for the tax system. Like there is no reason that it should be that endlessly complex. We we were t chatting with Richard Thaler on the podcast, and he's like, most of the countries in the world, you can have a scenario where for ninety percent of the individuals, they just mail you a postcard. Say, here's how much we think you owe. If you agree, check the box. If you don't, you can file your taxes. That eliminates 90% of people filing their own taxes with the thousands of pages of rules and regulations. Like I did my taxes and I do them every year, but 
Do I know that I did them 100% correct? No, like I don't, I don't even understand half of the topics and questions and I'm a professional in this world. Anyway, yeah. end of rant. <laughs> How, there's a lot of very there's a lot of very obvious policy solutions that everyone on the planet seems to agree with that could be implemented by our government that isn't because of various levels of lobbyists and interested parties and established incumbents, which is really frustrating. I'm not going to be running for civil office, but it is a depressing part of the entire process. I'll leave it at that. Well, I guess the specific thing that I defended was I thought in March for the government and the Fed, and I understand buying junk bonds makes people upset, and I'm, I'm, I don't even disagree with that necessarily, but the idea of not having a deflationary bust in the middle of a pandemic was something that I sort of understood trying to stave off, and the idea that like a bunch of people that are elected and depend on society continuing to run without massive hiccups that are potentially unavoidable, trying to avoid those massive hiccups... I understand where they were coming from, and I don't know that I could have done any better. So I don't know. People didn't like that, but whatever. 13F replication is a better approach to investing in most long-term hedge funds than the hedge funds themselves. What do you think of that? So we wrote a book on this topic called Invest with the House, and the original idea we had a long time ago, referencing me being a quant, you know, and the origin story of me being a quant is, you know, I have all the behavioral biases, and I'd probably be the world's most worst discretionary investor. I'm overconfident. I take on too much risk, on and on and on. But the biggest one is I'm I'm too optimistic. So every CEO presentation at any value conference that I've ever been to, I'm like, that's the best idea I've ever heard, right? Every single one. So I just, I don't have the, the skeptic bone. And so, but back in the day, I used to say, well, why don't I just buy what Buffett buys? Like, that seems so obvious to me. And so we went through and built a database that would let you replicate and test all the hedge fund managers. It's called Form 13F. It gets published every quarter, 45 days after the the quarter end. Their disclosures, once they were public, so meaning what would it look like if you bought Buffett stock picks? And I actually added an extra week, say a week after they become disclosed to the public. And the takeaway was for the long-term stock pickers like Buffett, it works fantastic. You end up with the ability to replicate the portfolio for zero cost, which is a big one because hedge funds charge two and 20 on average. You can tax manage them. You can do whatever you want. And we learned a ton during that experience. And so you can see some of the names we did in this book, Baupost, Appalooza, which was the best performer, on and on and on. And there's obviously lots of things wrong with the 13F that you can't count on, that you need to not follow certain companies. So it drives me crazy when journalists will write about Bridgewater and what they're up to. Well, they're a macro fund and they have hedging derivatives positions, which just don't show up. So it's not an accurate representation. The high speed traders, it doesn't matter. We actually had some pretty amazing insights in the early days. One of our common friends we were chatting about earlier when I asked my friends, Back then, I said, list, list me your 10 favorite hedge funds that you would invest in with your own money. And one of them, most of these funds, would we'd call it clone wonderfully. And in many cases, they would beat the underlying fund because whether it was timing, whether it was position sizing, but usually it was a two and 20, Maverick, on and on and on. But there was a couple that just the return stream didn't look like the hedge funds returns. And the biggest one was Galleon. 
who just had an absolutely atrocious return stream. And it turned out is because they were insider trading. It didn't have anything mm. to do with their stock picks. So they were just trading around earnings announcements. Subsequently went to jail. But SAC was another one. So no comment on on whether that was just because they were super fast traders or they were doing some other stuff. But I'm surprised. There's There's a lot of people that have taken that torch and written papers. And I know plenty of institutions that do it in-house and don't tell anyone about it. To me, it's a it's a totally, we did an old article like, would you rather invest in Berkshire or Buffett? And we actually filed a fund a while back to launch an ETF. And we humorously called it the Omaha ETF and ticker OMHA. And the SEC says, you can't call it this. I said, why not? They say, well, because everyone's going to think you're investing in companies in Omaha. And I said, no, they're not. No one thinks that. <laughs> and at the time, there used to be a Nashville ETF that invested in companies in like Tennessee or something. So maybe that was the reason being. And then I just told them, I said, no, this is this is a reference to Peyton Manning and Audible. <laughs> and they were just like, stop wasting our time, Meb. So, but it's a fun book. It's one of my favorite books. Again, free online. So check it out. The beauty of that topic, if you look at Buffett, it was also, we had an old article called How to Beat 98% of All Mutual Funds. And the simple Buffett 13F clone over the past 20 years creams the vast majority of mutual funds, but he underperformed like it's some obscene amount of, it's like 15 of the last 17 years or something, right? So he had this this massive life-altering outperformance from 2000 to 2003 to 2007, really, where value had that moment. But the example is like how many people, if you had blinded this return stream, would have already sold or fired this person? And everyone, you know, everyone would have. There's no person that would have hired him post-crisis that would still allocate. But in reality, that's the time horizon you need. You need 10, 20 years for these guys to show up. Yeah. Well, this is the old God would get fired thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here's a, a pre-mortem, and then and then I'll let you get out of here. If if the U.S. outperforms international, why did it happen? Do you think over the next five to ten years? I think there's only two choices because if you look at the equation, dividend yield, earnings growth, change in multiple, the dividend yield set, starting valuation set. So there's only two things that can happen: either the valuation multiple goes up which is possible, but it's lofty. Or the earnings have to be an absolute moonshot growth. Now, if you deconstruct that earnings growth equation, you can tease it out to real earnings growth and inflation. So theoretically, you could have monster inflation, in which case the nominal returns would be great, but the real returns would stink. So depending on what you're talking about. So that's one. People just go full bananas on. I mean, and look, it's happened before. I mean, again, we're talking about all the countries that have hit 40, 60 on the Cape ratio. Like it's happened plenty of places. They just tend not to be. They tend to be smaller than the U.S. So that's one of two scenarios. The third would be that foreign somehow just absolutely implodes. And I'm trying to think of. I mean, there's plenty of scenarios on <laughs> what could happen for that to occur. But I think it's pretty unlikely. And not only do I think it's unlikely, that's what I do with my own money. The the biggest trigger on Twitter is when I talk about how I put 401k assets in my kids' 529 into foreign stocks and and people lose their mind. (laughs) Say, but look, if I had to place one bet for the next decade, 
and close my eyes and just look at absolute return potential, to me, it's emerging markets value, which is trading at just obscene to me, cheap levels. And we have a fund that does that, of course. And if you randomly screen the 3000 ETFs out there on value measures, it usually shows up as like number one. But if I had to like desert island, any environment, retain my purchasing power, I would do a momentum and trends strategy so that it exits to cash and bonds if every, if the world goes through some sort of collapse. But, but the tying back together, the discussion, the big risk, which we didn't really talk about, equities are priced for perfection when inflation is one to 3%. And when inflation starts to tick above three, above four, the multiple people are willing to pay historically in every country around the world goes down. So that 22 goes to 17. You tick above 6%. And again, who knows if this is transitory, if it's permanent. We're talking low teens. I think it's going to be a, a bet I would not make. Fair enough. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. I hope I didn't let you down. That's Well, you didn't get a talk any. I, I just I diarrhea disgust the blathered the whole time. So I was really looking forward to hour three just being a, a normal conversation <laughs> instead of a, a mana I monologue. I keep going, but man. I don't need to turn it off. Me, I just I want to be cognizant caught up of your on time. certain you get me caught up on certain topics and I can't help myself. So Well, if so uh, if it. you ever want me to verbally diarrhea, I'm happy to do it again. So When are you coming to LA? I should be there in October. Oh, nice. I'll be in Manhattan Beach, uh, man. I'll look you up. Let's grab some beers. Well, as you know, that's where I live. So if you don't, I'll be extremely offended.